Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to do something a little different today, and rather than read the entire passage first, we will uh, work our way through it bit by bit. And so let's ask for God's illumination in this. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is truth. If it's if it's not truth, there's no point in even studying it in the way we look at it. If it's not truth, there's, there's no reason to, to seek to conform our lives to it or even be affected in any long-term way by it. And yet you have told us it is truth. And so by faith, Lord, today, we come to you believing that and asking that you will cause your Holy Spirit to teach it to our hearts, to infuse it into our hearts and our minds so that we would be challenged, so that we would uh, learn, but much more than that, so that we would know you better and then respond in love. And so we are asking for this, not because we deserve it, we don't, but because we know that you are our loving, heavenly Father who loves to speak to his children. And so here we are. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. I want to remind you uh, where we left off Last week, uh, Jesus had withdrawn after a great miracle. If you're visiting with us or you weren't here last, last week, we uh, talked about his feeding of the 5,000. After that, uh, the people moved in on him. There were some that evidently wanted to make him king by force. In other words, as they were on their way to uh, Jerusalem for Passover, Perhaps they, they wanted this Passover to be when the triumphal entry would take place. 
but it wasn't time. And so he withdrew. And that's where we're going to pick up with verse 16. It says, when evening came, this is that same day, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they, uh, he, he didn't check in with them when he walked away, when he, when he slipped away. There were huge crowds, remember? But evidently, he didn't, didn't say, look, I, I'm, I'm going to be by myself, or didn't say anything to them. So they gathered and evidently decided, uh, well, let's go back to Capernaum, which uh, would have been a, a place where uh, that was like their headquarters in a sense. Uh, Jesus lived there a good bit during his ministry when he wasn't out other places, and uh, some of the disciples ended up living there as well. So uh, they thought, well, that, that's the logical thing for us to do, and uh, that's what we see. Jesus had retreated to the mountain by himself. Verse 18, as they're out on the sea, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, last week I told you uh, about this Sea of Galilee uh, that it is actually a good bit smaller than, than Lake Murray. And uh, it is very prone, because of its geography and, and so on, is very prone uh, for there to be big storms that happen there. The sea itself is located some 700 feet below sea level. So what happens there is uh, up up north of the sea is Mount Hermon, that is a, a 9,200-foot 9, uh, mountain. And there's, uh, that's, that's the one place in, in uh, Israel uh, that there's actually a ski resort. Uh, so that tells you, at least during part of the year, that uh, it, it's colder, but at any point, the, the air up there is going to be colder. And so what happens, the weather pattern would be that uh, when that, that cold air works its way down and, and meets the, the warm sea level air, uh, it, it causes these big storms. So here's what you want to picture. Last Sunday afternoon. I hope you weren't out in a rowboat on Lake Murray last Sunday afternoon. But that's basically what, what, what's going on. Now, that it's bigger than a little rowboat. Don't think of it as a, a two-man or anything. But still, uh, to be out during that kind, and to be rowing, in essence, against uh, that kind of a wind, you, you can imagine. So... They are trying to, to row up to Capernaum, which is a, a little bit north of where they were, and it's dark. So verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, 
Now, when, when we're reading Scripture, it's important to, to notice things like this. Um, every word of Scripture is there for a reason. But, uh, you know, it's one thing if you say, yeah, I, uh, I, you know, you're giving directions and to somebody that's driving us three or four miles down this way. It's, there's a big difference in rowing between three and four miles, okay? So there evidently was some disorientation, too, because of what was going on here. Uh, here's the other thing that you can note about being that far out in the sea. There was no trickery with Jesus walking on sandbars or something like this. If somebody wants to, to write off this miracle that's about to happen, impossible. What was about to happen is in no way natural. It's supernatural. One commentator says this. There were the disciples battling the gale, wondering if they would make it to shore. The storm was raging. The waves were immense. The spray kept dashing over the ship. The mass had begun to crack, and water was sloshing in the dark hold of their beleaguered ship. The disciples probably wondered, has the Lord forgotten us. Now think about that. Now think about the storm that some of you are going through. Perhaps some of you are feeling that very thing. Has the Lord forgotten me? Here they were. They, were, they were helpless, basically. They were going to go where the wind was going to take them if they, or, or they were going to go to the, the bottom of the sea. They didn't know which. And so that would have been a logical question. Has he just forgotten us? And I'm around enough people that go through enough difficult things where I know sometimes, whether you want to admit it or not, that question, however fleetingly, can go through your mind. Has he forgotten me? They saw Jesus, it says, verse 19 still, walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Now, if you look at the, the parallel passages, which would be Matthew and Mark, um, in Mark, it says that he came walking across and he almost walked by the boat, which to me is rather funny, I, I, you know, to think, that he would actually walk by them. I don't think he had any intention of walking by them, but that's, that's exactly how 
he describes it. He's about to walk by them, and they, they go, hey, <laughs> you know, there, there's Jesus. And so um, they see him. Now, perhaps they had been in enough storms, or perhaps they were focused enough on doing what they needed to do to get through this storm, that that wasn't what caused them to be afraid. But when they saw Jesus walking on the water, they were frightened. And the other two passages that are parallel to this says they thought he, they thought he was a ghost. They thought he was an apparition. So, and, and why not? I mean, superstition ran wild back then, but not only that, they'd never seen anybody walk on water before. Who would expect that? They had seen water turned into wine. They had seen two healings. They had seen 15 to 20,000 fed that day. Remember, there were 5,000, it says 5,000 men, but then there were the women and the children. So this huge crowd is fed on that day. But now when they see him walking across the water, it dawns on them. This is someone different. And it causes them to fear. They were afraid and Jesus absolutely knew it. And that's what happens when you encounter the true and the living God. You look back in the Old Testament, you look at, for instance, Isaiah. And when he had a, a vision of the true God, all he could say is, woe is me, I'm unclean. And among a people of unclean lips, he says, I'm unclean and you are too. And here we are in front of this God. So Jesus then deals with their fear. Verse 20, he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So he, he deals with their fear in, in two ways, in my view. His identity and his presence. First of all, his, he, his identity is a part of dealing with uh, their fear, who he is. He identifies himself when he says, it is I. Now, that, that makes sense for him to say, it's, it's me. But that verb form is uh, the, the, basically the same verb form that we see way back in the Old Testament when God himself is introducing who he is. When, when the question is, well, what, what's your name? And he says, I am. This is the same verb form. So whether he said, it is I, or he said, I am, it got through to them. In fact, uh, we will see in John, in fact, in this passage and, 
and several more, we will see more I am statements. This usually isn't considered his first I am statement, but that's what he said. So here he identifies himself with with the great I am. Yahweh was the, the Old Testament term. The sovereign one. So the first thing he does for their fear is to say, look, I am the sovereign one. And then the next thing he does is he gives them his presence. He is present with them. He gets into the boat, basically. And that's what we need to, we need to know. If you're, if you're in the middle of something or, or you've been through something and, that, and you, you've, you've asked that question, is God... Has he forgotten me? Know who he is. And if you're his child, know that he not only has not forgotten you, he is in the boat with you in the middle of your storm. Verse 21 then. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. (laughs) Come on in. They were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, Matthew and Mark both indicate that uh, he got in the boat and the wind subsided. It doesn't even say that in John. It just says he got in the boat and they were in Capernaum. (laughs) Now, whether that was another miracle you know, you, you take your choice on that, whether that's the case or not, or whether it was just that they were so overwhelmed and the seas calmed down and they, it was as if it was just in the next moment that they were exactly where they were going. We, we don't know. It just says that uh, they were where they were going. Now, we have kind of a transition part here of what's going to happen Uh, on the next day. Look at verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had uh, been only one boat there, that Jesus had not entered that boat with his disciples. Some of them were probably watching it. But that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So either it was people who had eaten bread or had heard about it, and so they jump in their boats and they, they come to see what's going to take place next. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Evidently, they knew that's was a logical place for him to be. And then we see another interaction here. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now, I would never want to put words in in Jesus' mouth. But wouldn't it have been cool if he'd said, oh, I walked, you know? That's... (laughs) But he, but he didn't. He, I'm glad, you know, 
what he said is better. <laughs> Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he doesn't even address this chit-chat question. When would you get here? Instead, he cuts right to their heart. And basically, it's because he absolutely knew their hearts. And he took them there. He wasn't going to let them off the hook here. He basically says, you, you're here because you had full bellies. That's it. That's why you came. It wasn't, when he says it wasn't because of the signs, his, what do the signs do? They point to who he is. But instead, he says, you know, you're, you want to fill your bellies again or you want, want some kind of, of healing or, or something like that. And then he puts it into perspective, verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, Let's just stipulate. There's nothing wrong with having a full stomach. He's not, he's not upset about that. He's not concerned about that. But Jesus is saying, you've got your priorities all out of whack. There is a food that I can give you that will last, that will absolutely satisfy <clears throat> so where do we see application with this well let me let me caution you against this attitude of the the seeking after Jesus for a filled belly you say what you know that that wouldn't be me well i, I hope it's not and yet, in our day, there are churches that preach a prosperity gospel where they are basically saying, and by the way, that's a, that's a misnomer, a prosperity gospel is not the gospel at all. They've left out the nature of Christ. They've left out the nature of man. And so the prosperity or health and wealth gospel, some some call it, is, is basically Jesus wants you well and he wants you prosperous. And so, so you, you can have your best life now. Do you see how parallel that is with what he is warning against? Because what would happen? What's, what's the problem with all that? What's wrong with with? Having prosperity, by the way, the, uh, in those churches, it, it usually doesn't work for everybody, but it does work for the preachers. 
But what's wrong with that? Well, ultimately what's wrong is at best it's temporary. At best. It's like these who were fed one day, and I promise you if they were fed that day, they were hungry again when they came to see Jesus. And they were probably hoping for more food. And they would be hungry the next day and the next and the next. And even healing. We know we live in a a, a fallen world and sometimes God heals. He can do that absolutely. We believe it. We pray for it. There's nothing negative about that. But understand this. When he chooses to heal in this life, at best, it's temporary. Because that same person who may be healed will eventually get sick and die. That's the way this life, this fallen world, works. And so Jesus is is warning against that. And he's saying instead of seeking that, those things aren't bad, but instead of seeking that, don't miss out that there is a food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you. And that's what will last and that's what will satisfy ultimately. And it's trusting in him alone for eternal life. That's what he's bringing them to. And so in verse 28, then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God. And here we are again. That's the default button, isn't it? Isn't that what what everyone tends to think? Everyone outside of Christianity says, okay, then what do we do? Give us the steps and we will do those to work our way to God. And he basically says, Okay, I'll tell you what to do. What you do is believe. (laughs) It's what you do. Jesus answered them, verse 29, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the greatest need right there. It also shows that when he says work for the food that endures to eternal life, he wasn't implying you work for your salvation to earn it. He makes it clear it's all about believing him and trusting in him. Verse 30, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, I read right through that. But think about this for a moment. What sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? They had seen him feed fifteen or 20,000 people. If it was me, I would have said, are you kidding me? But we see 
the glorious patience of Jesus with them and with us, because isn't that just like us too? You show me something. He could say, I, you know, I, I walked out of a tomb. What else do you want to see? But he doesn't do that. So they, they say, will you give us bread like Moses did? And again, Jesus is patient. Jesus says to him, verse 32, he corrects him, reminds him. Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So he's saying, look, yeah, you can talk about Moses. He wasn't, it, it wasn't his miracle. That was from God but now God is giving you something better than this manna. It's, it's the bread from heaven that gives life to the world. So Jesus is saying, let me tell you what's really happening. When, when he sent the manna, it, it wasn't just to feed the people for that day. Yes, it was enough for that day. And then the next day, more manna was sent. And, and, and then there was enough for that day and so on. But what that showed is that, that we need enough each day. It needs to happen again and again. And that manna... That manna was only for one nation. I want to tell you about a bread that you don't have to go collect every day. And it's enough for the whole world. And it, that one conquered, for a time, the, that manna conquered physical death. It kept you from starving to death in the wilderness. But the manna that, that God now sends will give you life eternal. So they want that bread. Verse 34, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Where is it, basically, is what they were saying. Now again, Jesus knew their hearts and if you ever get impatient with trying to be a witness to somebody, just look at, look at Jesus' amazing patience with these people. He, he could have said, you all are still thinking about the bread from yesterday. Can't you catch up with what I'm saying? His response is, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, we're going to go into that a, a, a whole lot more next week of what he means by that. But he is describing himself as a bread unlike unlike. They could imagine, and unlike we can imagine, 
he is saying this, look, this is a bread that not, not only helps your hunger, but this bread takes care of your thirst as well. And it satisfies. Now that's unlike, unlike bread we think of. You know, you're, you're going to have lunch here pretty soon. And if, if it's something really good, you're going to want to have it again. Even if you're full, you want to have that again sometime. He says, look, this bread, this bread absolutely satisfies. And it will not only take away your hunger, that hunger that you can't seem to handle yourself, that empty spot here in your soul, and it, it'll hunger, it, it will take care of your thirst as well. That thirst that you can't seem to quench with all these other things you have tried to, to, to drink. And some of you, some of you may be, you know, with the a, with a bread, you may be trying to go low carb here, right? You may be trying to get that satisfaction without the, the real bread. And Jesus says, no, it won't happen. It can't. The answer is the, the answer that he keeps coming back to in this glorious gospel is belief. Trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. Let's bow together. Lord, will you give us hearts enabled to believe and to trust? And if we've been seeking after other things to quench our thirst and to, to take care of that hunger that's in our soul, help us to know that, that the ultimate answer, the only thing that will satisfy long term, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.